It is impossible for broken, fallen, corrupted, and enslaved people to obey their way, to good deed their way into heaven. It would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. But the gospel is the good news that what is impossible for man is possible with God. In Christ, God does for us what we could never do for ourselves, and he pays for what we have done in his body on the cross. He gives us a new heart, and he puts his spirit within us such that we may begin to grow in the direction of his perfect righteousness. As for the houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land, this no doubt refers to the immediate and eternal gift of the church. In the church, you will find 100 mothers, 100 fathers, 100 brothers, 100 sisters for everyone you have lost because of your decision to follow Jesus. And these, because they are Christ's, will never be taken from you. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Jesus understood the value and importance of family. He knew that making the decision to follow him would potentially cost us the love and support of those closest to us, so he promised that the church would be a family to all those who put their faith and trust in him. The theme of family is all over this chapter. It talks about the joy of family, and it also addresses the painful reality that sometimes families and marriages fall apart. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 19. The first two verses of this chapter serve as something of a transition. They bring to an end what we have identified as the fifth section in Matthew's Gospel, which we've titled Progressive Polarization. We've been telling the story of how Judaism began to fracture under the pressure of Jesus' teaching and claims. To a certain extent, that story never really ends. It carries on to the end of Matthew's gospel and into the story of the book of Acts. But there is a discernible shift now in chapter 19 toward a more intense focus on the eschaton, the end. Many scholars therefore say that the sixth section of Matthew's gospel begins here in 19.3 and carries all the way through to chapter 26, verse 5. The section concludes with the great teaching unit known to many of us as the Olivet Discourse or the Eschatological Discourse. We'll be using that word a lot, so we should probably define it. As implied above, the word eschaton has to do with the end, with how things work out and how things wrap up. Eschatology, therefore, means words about the end. The Eschatological Discourse is a sermon from Jesus about the end of all things. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. This is a transitional passage telling us that Christ's retirement or retreat from Jewish opposition headquartered in Jerusalem has now ended. Henceforth, he will engage his opponents among the Jewish leadership head on. Therefore, many scholars give this entire section the heading Opposition and Eschatology, and those do seem to be the two main themes addressed in the next several chapters. We pick up the story at verse 3. 
And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. We see here again that Jesus fundamentally rejected the Pharisaic approach to righteousness. He saw them as always trying to find loopholes so as to avoid the true intention of the law. He saw them as focused on mere external performance as opposed to real internal transformation. And this discussion is just another example of that. The text in question here is Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. There was a difficult translation issue that presented a potential loophole for the Pharisees. What did Moses mean when he said that a man may issue a certificate of divorce to his wife if he found some indecency in her? Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. The Hebrew word erva technically means nakedness, disgrace, or shame. But what did Moses mean by using that word? Many of the Pharisees said that it meant anything displeasing, while some more conservative teachers said that it referred only to cases of sexual immorality. Jesus, as we would by now expect, goes right to the heart of the matter. He says that the fundamental problem is the hardness of the human heart. He says that the intention of the command was not to promote divorce, but to limit it. He then settles the question of what Moses meant by erva, he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Thus, once again, we see that Jesus does not overturn the law. Rather, he takes us directly to the heart and essence of the law. He tells us exactly what Moses meant. Who else would even try to do that? But Jesus does it because Jesus is the ultimate author of the law. We can't avoid that implication. Jesus is once again saying in no uncertain terms, I know what exactly is going on here. Let me tell you what this law is all about. And he goes on to speak to them about marriage. He tells them that God's design and intention was for one man and one woman to come together in covenant marriage for a lifetime. Therefore, divorce is only permitted, permitted, Jesus says, not required, only permitted in cases of sexual immorality. This would, of course, include adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, etc. Jesus is almost certainly here assuming the categories of prohibited sex listed in the Holiness Code in Leviticus 18 to 20. That's what Moses meant by erva. He meant sexual immorality, as he later went on to define. Good to know. However, the disciples weren't sure that it was good to know. In fact, they appear blown away by Jesus' authoritative interpretation. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, 
Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. The disciples found Jesus' standard to be very high, almost impossibly high. But again, Jesus speaks of receiving this teaching and keeping this commandment as a gift from God. We're reminded of St. Augustine's famous prayer, Oh God, command what you will and give what you command. Hey, Pastor Paul, let me jump in here because I know that this is a very sensitive issue for many people out there listening on with us. And so I thought it might be useful to look at this topic comprehensively. There are other passages in the New Testament that address the issue of divorce as well, are there not? Yeah, in fact, this is actually the second time the conversation has come up in the Gospel of Matthew alone. Jesus also addressed the topic in Matthew 5 in one of those, you have heard it said, but I say to you passages. So there he was basically raising the bar in terms of the standard set by the Pharisees. Most modern day Bible readers would probably assume that the Pharisees would have had a very strict approach to divorce because they come off as legalistic in many other contexts. But actually, the Pharisees had a very lax approach to divorce. They said that if your wife displeased you for pretty much any reason, you could give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. So Josephus, the Jewish historian, is probably the best known Pharisee to most of us outside the Bible. And he wrote about how he divorced his wife. And he didn't sound all that torn up about it. He said, about which time I divorced my wife also as not pleased with her behavior, Though not till she had been the mother of three children, after this I married a wife who had lived at Crete, closed quote. So Josephus says that he wasn't pleased with his wife's behavior, so he just divorced her, just like that. Despite the fact she was the mother of his three children. Nice guy. Yeah, right. I mean, like I said, there was was a very low bar for divorce among the Pharisees, and Josephus is representative of that. And so the passage in Matthew 5 is about Jesus raising the bar and making it much harder for men to divorce their wives. Then we have the passage that we just read in Matthew 19, where the Pharisees come and challenge Jesus on that. So it's really a longer version of what he said in Matthew 5. We have the same conversation recorded in Mark 10 as well. But then we have some substantially new content in 1 Corinthians 7. In that letter, some early Christians had written to the Apostle Paul asking some questions that they had as new believers. And Paul writes back to them with some answers. That sounds awesome. I wish we could do that today. (laughs) It does sound awesome. (laughs) Well, anyway, one of their questions had to do with divorce, and it dealt with something that Jesus had never addressed. So Paul, in the Spirit, sent them a response. In essence, they were wondering what to do when only one member of a marriage had converted to faith in Christ. Obviously, God didn't want people to be unequally yoked, so it would be wrong for a Christian single person to marry a non-Christian single person. But what about if you were both unbelievers when you got married, but then one of you came to Christ and the other didn't? What then? That was the question. And so Paul replied saying, if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But 
If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Closed quote. That's 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 15. So there, it sounds like the believer can't initiate the divorce, but if the other party doesn't want to be married to a believer, then the believer could consent to the divorce. Is that basically it? Yes. The idea seems to be that the believer should be willing to stay because the marriage relationship offers a fantastic opportunity to display the gospel. And so you would have a reasonably good chance of winning over your spouse through the display of your transformed behavior. But if the unbeliever does not wish to be married to a Christian and initiates the divorce, then it is fine to go along with it. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or bound, as the NIV has it. And that refers to their freedom to get remarried, right? Yes. In general, if the divorce is legitimate, then remarriage is legitimate as well. So in essence, we've got two just cases for divorce mentioned in the New Testament. We've got sexual immorality and spiritual abandonment. Is that right? Yes, I would say that the majority of Christian pastors and theologians would hold to that view. All right, so what about abuse? I know that's a tricky topic, but we want to be as useful to people as we can. Does the Bible mention abuse as a legitimate cause for divorce? The Bible doesn't address the issue of physical abuse as a potential justification for divorce, but it does say a variety of things that will be helpful to any pastor, elder, counselor, or friend giving counsel to an abused person. The first thing that should be said is that physical abuse is a sin. The Bible commands a Christian to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. That's 1 Timothy 6.11. Husbands are told, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's 1 Peter 3.7. So the Bible commands all Christians to be gentle in their dealings with one another. And it tells husbands to be understanding toward their wives and to treat them with special honor. Therefore, all forms of physical, emotional, verbal, and sexual abuse should be considered and called out as sin. It's also worth noting that the Bible disqualifies abusive men from serving in leadership positions within the church. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Sober-minded, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, etc. 1 Timothy 3, 1-4. The Greek there literally says, not a plectus, not a striker. A man who hit his wife was disqualified from serving as an elder in the church. So, abuse is a sin, and it disqualifies a person from serving as a leader in the church. And it is also against the law. A woman who has been hit by her husband should do two things immediately. First, she should call the police. The Bible says that the king does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's Romans 13, 4. The Bible says that God gives to the government the authority to restrain evil and to punish evildoers. So if a wife is struck by her husband, she should call the police. God gives guns and tasers and handcuffs to the police for the protection of the vulnerable. A wife should make appropriate use of that provision. Government officials are charged by God to restrain evil and to punish evildoers, and the church must never stand in the way of that commission. 
The second thing an abused Christian woman should do is call her pastor or the elders of her church. If the husband is a member of the church, he should immediately come under discipline. If he does not repent, he should be excommunicated. Excommunication implies that the church can no longer credit his profession of faith. Now, to be clear, it does not make him an unbeliever, but it does declare that the church does not believe that he is truly saved. In the eyes of the church, the woman is now married to an unbeliever with all that that implies, which means she could potentially pursue divorce under the grounds mentioned in 1 Corinthians 7. If the husband cannot or will not and does not desire to live with her as a Christian husband, then she should not be bound. Listen, obviously this is a really serious topic. It's almost too serious for a question and answer session on a radio program, even though that might in fact be the safest way for a vulnerable person to get some initial counsel. But the next step has to be, the first step in in an actual situation has to be going to the police and going to your church authorities. Those mechanisms are there for your protection and well-being. So don't go about this on your own. Involve other people immediately. Hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think it also makes a strong argument for church membership. I don't see how the church could be all that helpful unless the couple was officially connected to the church through membership. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's right. Obviously, the church can offer shelter and advice in any situation. But to really bring pressure and authority and discipline to bear on the offending party, there needs to be some kind of official connection. I think church membership is an added layer of safety, particularly for women, when it comes to these sorts of situations. All right. Thanks so much for that. Let's jump back into the text now at verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Once again, Jesus is presented as giving a place of honor to children in the kingdom of God. As when in chapter 18, Jesus says that leadership is about helping and protecting little ones on their way to God. Here he practices what he has preached. And he welcomes the little ones into his presence. Our churches, therefore, should give a great deal of thought as to how best to help the children on their way to God through faith in Christ. Verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now let's pause here. What is Jesus doing in this story? And why would he say such a thing? Does Jesus believe that we can obey our way into the kingdom of God? Well, no, of course not. Jesus knows very well how broken and wayward we are. We will never obey our way into the kingdom of God. Jesus knows this. But this brother clearly does not. And therefore, Jesus uses questions about the law to lead this man toward poverty of spirit. And that's how we ought to use the law as well. John Wesley, a famous British evangelist and one of the key figures in the First Great Awakening in Britain and America, said that when he went into a town, he always began by preaching the law. He preached the commandments of God until a spirit of conviction had fallen on the people and they were crying out under the weight of their sin and the certainty of damnation. Then he preached the gospel of grace. 
And after they were converted and had started out on the path of faith, he preached the law again, lest they succumb to sin and folly. That is the pattern of gospel ministry. The law convicts us of sin and shows us our need of a Savior. And that is precisely how we see Jesus using it here. Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? It seems that this man has come under the influence of the Pharisees. He has bought into an external understanding of the law and thinks in terms of mere performance. He's obviously never heard Jesus preach on the law as he did back in Matthew 5, or he would never say that he has kept all the commandments. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Remember, Jesus didn't teach a merely surface performance of the law. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 48, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus went right after the heart. You must love the Lord your God more than money. He said this back in Matthew 6, 24. But this man loved money more than God. And he was therefore excluded. This would have been a good time for him to fall on his face and confess that he was a sinner, and to beg Jesus for grace and mercy. This would have been a good time to rise up and to follow Jesus and to trust in him to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. But instead, this young man went away sorrowful. Verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty... Will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven? Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It is impossible for broken, fallen, corrupted, and enslaved people to obey their way, to good deed their way into heaven. It would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. But the gospel is the good news that what is impossible for man is possible with God. In Christ, God does for us what we could never do for ourselves, and he pays for what we have done in his body on the cross. He gives us a new heart, and he puts his spirit within us such that we may begin to grow in the direction of his perfect righteousness. 
As for the houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land, this no doubt refers to the immediate and eternal gift of the church. In the church, you will find 100 mothers, 100 fathers, 100 brothers, 100 sisters for everyone you have lost because of your decision to follow Jesus. And these, because they are Christ's, will never be taken from you. Your fellowship with them will stretch into eternity. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word here on Life 100.3. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 